Hi, this is Fraser Rice with the Fraser Rice Podcast. Today I'm with Michael Devon from Urban Seed. Urban Seed is a sustainable indoor farming company that focuses on becoming a supplier of locally grown, non-genetically modified foods. These foods include fruits, vegetables, herbs, and microgreens. They're initially started here in the United States, but they look to go further into the international markets. Michael, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me, Fraser. How did you get involved with them? A good friend of mine, Keith Bell, is an engineer in Southern California, who I met a couple years ago through a mutual friend, and uh, immediately became intrigued about uh, the innovations that he was driving in the hydroponic market. And about six months later, he launched Urban Seed, and, and here we sit today. Where was Keith Bell located? Keith's in Southern California. He's an engineer by training. Uh, he's been running an injection molding business, supplying plastic cases to the aeronautical industry, including NASA, McDonnell Douglas, and Boeing for years. And increasingly over time, he's been providing products to the hydroponic industry, which served as the precursor to what is now known as Urban Seed. And so how does your background fit in with Urban Seed? We know each other from back in the days and sort of a Wall Street and investment background. How does that relate to uh, farming and agricultural development? I don't think there's a, a direct connection between the two, but uh, I've always had an entrepreneurial bug in my body, uh, which was not satisfied by in, invest, my investment banking experience. Um, I've constantly been looking to have the opportunity to build something. And I've also developed a passion for impactful solutions, as you know, over the course of the last couple of years as it relates to my activities and my investment uh, uh, activities. And, and this has given me the opportunity to marry the two. Well, don't mention bugs around farmers. They don't like that, right? <laughs> no, we don't. We don't like bugs, unless they're ladybugs. As we go forward here and talk about urban seed a little bit more, let's go into the idea of uh, some of the problems that uh, we need to deal with from an agricultural perspective. Sure. So globally, we have uh, an increasingly challenging problem with respect to feeding the world. And after that, it's providing the world with access to fresh and non-chemically based products. And urban seed solves those problems and also does so in a way that is not impactful to the environment and is also very conscious to the increasingly scarce resource known as water. So many people don't have much idea about the time and effort that it takes to get food to people. There's a real timeline that it takes to get something from, from the ground to people's forks. Could you describe a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. The structure of the food supply system in the United States is extremely inefficient. As our diets have evolved and people are uh, increasingly seeking higher quality, fresher, or organic produce, the produce is being sourced from points all around the world. If you go into your supermarket, you'll see that a lot of the broccoli is coming from Mexico, the green peppers are coming from Canada, and so forth. On average, produce travels about 1,500 miles from harvest to fork here in the United States. And there are a lot of problems associated with that with respect to nutritional value and other, other issues. Boy, that's a long way to go. And it sounds like aside from just the transportation and then getting things distributed to the end user, what are some of the other challenges that go into not only feeding a world population where the dietary needs may be a little bit more basic versus the intricate needs of maybe New York City residents who need to have their organic arugula or they can't get up in the morning. <laughs> right. Well, let's touch on the, the challenges of feeding the burgeoning world population because that's more of a critical need than getting the guy on the Upper East Side his organic produce. It's estimated that the world will need to increase its food production by 30 to 40 percent by the year 2050 to feed the world. Now, generally, I will concede that we probably produce enough food to feed the world, and it's more of a resource allocation issue. 
as we have actually more obese people in the world than we do starving people. But let's just talk about, you know, under the current construct of the world, how much food production will have to actually increase in order to feed the people. And that creates a lot of challenges. You know, the the food production system right now has an extremely heavy carbon footprint. Uh, it's estimated that the food supply system from production of the inputs and the farming and the transportation allocates or consumes about 20% of global energy and also generates somewhere between 25 and 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. And for obvious reasons, that cannot continue for the longer course of time. Obviously, the carbon footprint is a big deal, not only in terms of creating some issues across borders and all sorts of environmental impact. Uh, I get concerned about water consumption, too. Uh, how does that figure into uh, sort of the problems, maybe even crises that we face going forward? In a very meaningful way, uh, but on a localized basis. You know, certainly here in New York City, we don't have that much of a water crisis. But if you look at the uh, really scary low levels of water at Lake Mead out in Nevada or the widely publicized water scarcity in California where the government is rationing water use even for farms, that is something that is increasingly coming into the conversation around food production. Large carbon footprint, it gets into the global warming issue. We talked about water scarcity a little bit. What about the use of pesticides and other chemicals to increase yields? Uh, that's got to have an impact, and I've got to think that, that it's mostly negative. How do you think about that issue? Uh, it's, it's a very big concern, but it concerns different people in different ways. So if you're a starving person in northern Africa, you're not as concerned about the level of, of Roundup in your arugula as you are just getting calories into your body. But, you know, as we sit here in Manhattan, people are increasingly concerned about the level of pesticides and herbicides in their produce. One of the unintended consequences of the food industry, read companies like Monsanto and Syngenta, is that as they've been developing these genetically modified seeds to uh, increase the resilience or yields of crops on a worldwide basis, what it's done is it's created that resiliency, but then you, you have harvests or produce that requires more and more chemicals, be it herbicides or pesticides, to uh, be effective in maximizing yields, right? Because the plant evolves, right? It's like natural Darwinism. So what you've seen is you've seen a dramatic increase in the use of chemicals in traditional farming uh, over the last 15 years as the use of GMO seeds has increased dramatically. And it's that concern that has led people to seek out fresher, locally produced, non-chemically based uh, produce. We've talked a little bit about some of those types of problems that are sort of larger and systemic in getting people the calories that they need. Maybe a little bit of background on uh, maybe the level of nutrition that foods carry with them and how that's been affected by the long travel times that you described. Sure. And that will get into a, a deeper, more philosophical question. Um, there is there are Studies have shown that there's a natural and, I guess, obvious degradation of nutritional value as over the course of time from harvest to fork. I mentioned 1,500 miles being the average distance that produce travels uh, from harvest to fork. But more importantly, it's the time. And 1,500 miles by plane is one thing, but it'll increase the cost dramatically. But by truck, that could be three to five days. Uh, there have been some studies done that validate the fact that nutritional values fall dramatically over that course of time. And what most people don't realize is that USDA tests the nutritional value of produce at the point of harvest, not at the point of consumption. 
How does that affect obesity rates? I think it's certainly anecdotal and probably even statistical at this point that that Americans are getting fatter. How does that work? Well, and that's where it's going to get into a deeper conversation, and I'll touch on it. And I have very passionate feelings about this. The big problem here in the United States is the government has been regulating their production of corn, which is obviously the primary ingredient in high fructose corn syrup. And because of those heavy subsidies, lower socioeconomically challenged people are looking to buy food at the lowest dollar cost per unit of calorie, right? And what does that mean? That means they go to McDonald's, right? And that creates a problem, right? Because that fast food or processed food, while it's lower in cost, it's higher in fat content. And going one step further, the highest incidence of obesity in this country is in 324 counties. And most of those counties are defined as food deserts. And what that means is that they have very few supermarkets in the area. For example, Flint, Michigan, where we recently had this water poisoning incident, is a food desert. Most of those people are getting all of their nutrients from 7-Eleven. And obviously, that's going to increase the obesity rates. So increasingly, states and local governments, some of whom we've had some substantive conversations with, are actively seeking and offering us tax incentives to construct produce manufacturing facilities in those communities and working with the supermarkets and through uh, farmers markets and other points of distribution, providing access to those people that heretofore haven't been able to get fresh produce. So we've taken a few minutes and painted probably a pretty bleak picture regarding eating and nutrition and obesity in America. And you've taken a look at this and you're part of a group called Urban Seed. What, what exactly does that do and how does it attack some of these problems? Well, urban seed will make a significant impact in the areas where we are constructing our greenhouses. I I will openly admit that we're not going to solve the world's problems, uh, but collectively as a country, if we focus in the same fashion that urban seed is, we're going to make a significant impact over time. Urban seed has developed a greenhouse technology that where we are constructing greenhouses, first in the market of Las Vegas, where we will cultivate and harvest about 35 varieties of produce, mostly vegetables, but with some fruits, and deliver them to customers within 10 miles of our footprint. Essentially, you know, one of the problems you attack there is that time frame between getting things from the farm, uh, at least to the distributor, and hopefully even closer to the fork. Yes, but uh, to clarify, we are going to manufacture the facilities, we're going to operate the facilities, we're going to harvest, and we will distribute the product ourselves. Oh, okay. We will make daily deliveries to all of our customers. Our first customers are chefs for the high-end restaurants in Las Vegas. We are going to do some stuff with the farmer's markets. And the Vegas market is a great market from business perspective for us to attack first. And we've been operating there for about a year, providing samples to chefs there. And it's, it's really exciting for us because the Las Vegas market imports $2 billion worth of produce annually to feed the people that attend the 22,000 conventions there and all the people that are just going there to, to lose their money on the casino floor. Well, it's a real crucible to test your business model out. You've got a dry region, so there isn't a lot of agriculture going on around there, but you've got a lot of people there to feed. And so if it works there, those concepts can translate nationally and hopefully internationally. Yes. We're hoping that with respect to urban seed in our business, the old adage that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas doesn't apply. You know, we're looking to expand this around the country and around the world. But the other big driver for us is that all the high-end restaurants in Vegas and the chefs that are managing them value highly the quality of the product with a heavy focus on taste. 
and there's a massive degradation in in the taste of produce as time passes from harvest to consumption. If you've got that shorter time frame to get the harvest to the eater, that hopefully takes care of issues related to pesticides and preservatives and maybe a better use of water as well. Uh, yes, but in a different way. So we're we're cultivating our produce in a controlled environment. You know, we are not exposed to uh, to weeds because we're growing hydroponically. So we don't need to use any herbicides. So read no Roundup. And we don't need to use pesticides either. Uh, we have a double door enclosed system uh, where it's very difficult for insects to actually, you know, get into the facility. That being said, you know, we could have a, a bug here or there. And the way we combat that is not by using pesticides, but by using ladybugs. Nice. That's a, a nice natural way to, to go about solving that problem. Absolutely. There's a lot of talk about genetically modified foods, and it seems to me that if you're able to have a natural or, in, I put this in quotes, organic uh, experience with the things that you grow and get to the get to the table, uh, that you help to solve for that a little bit. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about the, 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 the controversy behind genetically modified foods and, and how Urban Seed uh, deals with that. That's a great question. My thoughts on GMO seeds has, has evolved over time. You know, as you know, I spent some time working for a fund that is investing in farmland. And many of those uh, commercial producers in the U.S. that are growing corn and, and wheat and soybeans are using GMO seeds, right? Because they're in the business of maximizing profits. Now, GMO seeds have been used uh, at commercial scale for the last 15 years or so. And there's a wide division of thought with respect to how dangerous GMO products are for us as humans. Some will say that there's no impact at all on global health. Others will adamantly insist that GMO seeds are necessary as they allow people to grow produce in areas where they couldn't otherwise. Areas like Australia that have extreme heat, areas that are stricken with low nutrient levels in the soil. But for those that are concerned about GMO seeds, they don't need to have any sort of thought about the impact of our produce on their health because we don't need to use GMO seeds because we're growing in a controlled environment. We don't have to worry about herbicides being used for weed infestation. We don't have to worry about the pest. Therefore, we use only non-GMO seeds in the um, cultivation of our produce. One of the interesting things, you've got the Las Vegas idea, and so th there's plenty of space in Nevada, I would think. But the concept of urban farming, where you're in places where there are fewer spaces to devote to agriculture, but the need to get the food to the person faster and a lot of the concepts that we talked about before still holds. How do you think about that? So we're thoughtfully executing our business plan in Las Vegas simply because the founders are there and we have a captive number of customers there. But from a business perspective, it's a lot more efficient to do so under glass because we don't need supplemental light. As you mentioned, in other cities like New York and Chicago and Dallas and L.A., there is an urgent need for fresh produce in those urban centers. Real estate costs will be a lot higher, but it is possible and efficient, not as profitable as our operation, to cultivate produce indoors. And those people will need to innovate the technology as it relates to HVAC controls, irrigation, and most importantly, lighting, because the cost of lights is extremely high, both from a capital cost perspective and a power consumption perspective. We envision being in that market at some point, you know, cultivating indoors. And in anticipation of that, we have developed an LED light that is 30% more efficient from a crop yield perspective than any other LED light in the entire world. 
And we've accomplished that with lower power consumption. And so, you know, we talk about urban environments, New York City, you hear about buildings that have gardens on the roofs and those types of features. Could you envision urban seed in this type of situation happening for that type of building, a skyscraper, for instance? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, we're already in discussions with several real estate developers around the country to do just that. And if you think of the economics of a building, they never model out the revenue possibility of the rooftop. Right? So there's a massive value proposition for us to go into a landlord to give him the opportunity to monetize the roof. And in many cases in cities like Chicago and Detroit, you can also get some good tax incentives from the city or the state to do so because you're going to create jobs and you're going to help combat the obesity problem, which weighs heavily on the cost of operating that municipality. Quick question. Does this type of thing work in the basement of buildings? It does, but you'd have to use supplemental light. And so adding to the cost and therefore making it a little le- little bit less advantageous. Yeah, less profitable. And there are a number of companies around the country, including several here in New York City, that are cultivating produce indoors, obviously with the use of LED lights. And the reason why they can be profitable is that this business, this vertical farming or urban farming business, is extremely disruptive. You remember at the outset of our conversation, we talked about that transportation part of the value chain. It's disruptive in the sense that you're taking that out, and all the economics come to the manufacturer, and we can pass on those economics to the customer at the end of the day. Is government taking notice of this? Are people starting to say, you know, this is something that from a government perspective, it's worth investing in? It sounds like there are a lot of public benefits, and it sounds like it's be something that politicians would say, you know what, if we can make this work, this might be something to devote tax dollars toward. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, Michelle Obama has created an initiative to help fund the construction of supermarkets and greenhouses and urban centers to provide those poorer people with access to fresh produce. So there are some governmental grant dollars that are being allocated to the market to solve that problem. You know, the other way that they become aware of it is through the cultivation of legal cannabis. You know, everybody knows, you, even if you're not a cannabis user, you can't go a day or two without hearing about it somewhere, even when the presidential candidates. The production of that crop is extremely uh, inefficient with respect to its electrical usage. I mean, they're putting major, major stresses on the electrical grid. And that's driven innovation in lighting technology. And some state governments, including in Massachusetts, Colorado, and I've heard recently in Washington State, are offering urban farmers, whether they're farming cannabis or green peppers or or strawberries, with tax incentives to use more efficient lighting systems. I agree with you. I hear about marijuana investments a lot in my day job. What do you do for your day job? That's kind of a Well, there are lots of people who think that it's a real source of profit, and maybe they're at the beginning of a, sort of a prohibition era emergence of a new industry. And so I, I guess from that perspective, what are you seeing on that front, and how does that relate to urban seeds? Are you actively courting that? Or are there stigma issues that make that confusing or contradictory to what you're trying to do on the other fronts? Urban seed is primarily in the business of cultivating produce, but the founders of urban seed are engineers and opportunistic entrepreneurs. And the the light technology that we've developed for urban farming technology is very effective um, in providing lighting solutions for that industry and arguably probably will be very profitable. You've seen as the legalization trend for cannabis has evolved over the last three years, the entrance of very wealthy Uh, family offices who are largely controlling a disproportionately higher share of cultivation markets around the country. And those people, by definition, are not capital constrained. So they have contacted us with great interest to potentially use our light in those settings. 
you know, as a company, we're agnostic. If somebody wants to buy our light from us, you know, we're happy to sell it to them. A couple of nuts and bolts questions. What, what's the optimal space requirement for your product? We've thought long and hard about that. So there are some greenhouse operators that will construct 60, 70,000 square foot greenhouses, and it could be more efficient from a crop propagation perspective. But as size grows, you introduce certain risk factors. The most notable one is infestation. The Johnson family of Fidelity fame a couple of years ago started a uh, tomato farming operation, I believe in Maine, and they had to throw away millions of dollars of tomatoes because they got an insect infestation and they, and they couldn't control it. So by constructing a smaller footprint facility, we manage that risk. If we do have to throw a crop away, maybe it's only a $50,000 crop as opposed to a you know, two, three, four, five million dollar crop. The other risk that we'll manage is the derivative of that in the sense that in a facility where you only have 6,500 square feet, you can see with your naked eye some sort of infestation before it becomes a bit of a problem, right? We only need three people to manage our facility effectively. So it's really kind of a best practice to have, let's say, 10 greenhouses as opposed to one big one. We believe so, yes. It sounds like most crops will work fine in this situation. Are there any in particular that are well-suited for this? Yes, I'll use lettuce as as a great example for that. So our A-frame technology allows us to propagate about 30 to 40 times the yield of traditional farming. If you envision a piece of plywood laid down on on the long side, and we have holes on either side of the A-frame, so we have 540 grow sites, as we like to call them, where we'll propagate leafy lettuce. We're on that same footprint in a harvest, you'll only be able to harvest, say, 50 heads of lettuce in traditional farming. So by going, by going vertical on, on a vertical plane as opposed to stacking, say, cookie trays on top of each other, you can exponentially increase your yield on a square footage basis. On the economics of it, if someone wanted to get started thinking about either incorporating these types of greenhouse scenarios on their property in upstate New York or somewhere else, or if they were thinking about trying to analyze its applicability to a building in an urban environment, maybe go through the analysis a little bit. What should people be looking at in terms of whether this makes sense economically? For the hoppiest growers, uh, there are some technologies that you can buy kind of out of box to start producing produce. One is a company I'm familiar with up in Boston called Freight Farms, where for the cost of $82,000, you can buy a shipping container that has been retrofit to grow a very narrow band of, of produce, leafy greens, basil, and a couple other, you know, I'm not that familiar with their business plan. But at $82,000, that costs you north of $320 a square foot. And then you have to invest your time to you know, actually propagate the seeds and fertilize and you know, distribute and so forth. The net profits can't support certainly your lifestyle in Manhattan. No, that's, right? that's a lot of basil. <laughs> it's a lot of basil, and you'd starve. So that being said, with the technological advances that have in some ways been driven by the legalization of cannabis, there are many uh, rooftop systems or even home systems that you can use to grow produce for your family. You cannot make a business out of that. But certainly, I think in urban centers, certainly for people that are very passionate about controlling the propagation of food that they're giving to their families, you'll be able to afford more of those systems over the passage of time next couple of years. So hoping the Las Vegas initiative is successful, uh, what are the next areas that you think are interesting? So we're going to focus on those areas where we don't need supplemental light for obvious reasons. And we also have a lot of opportunities there, particularly in Southern California, We've been approached by a school system in Southern California that is very interested in having us construct greenhouses alongside several elementary schools. 
which is great on many levels, right? Because we'll give the kids access to fresh produce, you know, at market prices or below. And we're also going to produce some educational modules for them to train them in the ways of hydroponic farming. And then we'll be able to use that footprint to thoughtfully distribute and develop a market in the gourmet supermarkets and some of the high-end restaurants around that school footprint. That was one of my questions. Whole Foods and the and the high-end supermarkets, they, they seem to have really gravitated toward the organic theme, uh, the freshness theme, the uh, farm-to-market theme. Have you intersected with them in a meaningful way or, or even celebrity chefs as a way to help get your message out? We have a lot of relationships with celebrity chefs. There are many of them in the Las Vegas market, probably 15 of whom we have sold produce to over the last year from our beta site. They will serve as the foundation of our customer base out there. Two in particular that are internationally known will join our advisory board over the next couple of weeks. I'm not at liberty to say who they are, but suffice to say you've seen them on TV. Mm-hmm. Those chefs also have uh, locations all over the country and some internationally. So that will significantly help us grow our footprint around the world. Uh, As it relates to the supermarkets, we will thoughtfully sell into the high-end gourmet supermarkets, maybe a Fairway here in New York City or a Whole Foods uh, anywhere around the country. But we have no visions of competing for shelf space at a Walmart, who also has shown a lot of interest in the space, because you're going to experience a significant margin compression when trying to sell into that marketplace. Really interesting. For the people who are, want to find out more about what you do at Urban Seed, what's the best way to find out about that? The best way to do that is to visit our website. It's urbanseedvegas.com. And certainly uh, anybody can you know, be free to contact me. My email is uh, mdevlin at urbanseedvegas.com. Excellent. Michael, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for the time.